The Reset Podcast is sponsored by Bose. With my new Bose QC35 headphones, nothing gets between me and my music. The noise canceling is world class. They're completely Bluetooth, so there's no wires. The sound is amazing. My producer and I love these so much that we use them to record every single show. For more information about Bose QC35 headphones and other Bose products, check out Bose.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Reset Podcast. I'm your host, Lauren Mignot, co-founder of the brand experience agency, Digital Flash, and we're coming to you from New York City. Each week, I bring an influential friend from marketing, business, or even government, and we'll delve into what's really happening in the industry and try and make sense of it all. Of course, we can't talk about marketing without talking about how it impacts this very moment in time. We'll laugh, we'll debate, and we'll give frank insight into the ongoing reset of the world of marketing and how to navigate your way through, all while enjoying wine and french fries on my couch. Hello, everybody. We are so excited to have a great friend of Digital Flash on the podcast, Sumit Ja. Hi, Yo. Sumit. Yo. I thought uh, I thought it was Mignot. I didn't know it was Mignot. The correct pronunciation is Mignot. I like Mignot better. I- that's nice for you. <laughs> Basically, I, I, are you going to jump past through the podcast and start strangling me right now? No, no, really? No, oh, no violence because oh, I'm paying for studio. True. I'm paying for studio time, so no. Uh, otherwise, because there'd be blood on the floor, they'd have to want me to clean it up. It'd be ugly. No, that's why I boxed, right? Yeah, that's why you box. <laughs> so you, can, yeah, but I fight dirty, so you're going to lose. This is actually very true. <laughs> and I'm a girl, so we fight dirty. Note uh, to self, everyone, literally, do not fuck with Laura. <laughs> I can actually say that by personal experience. <laughs> I I, I, it's just it's a thing stereotypes are true about those things um (laughs) that is not where i meant to go but all right let's do this it's accurate (laughs) um but uh simi it's so it's such a pleasure to have you on the show thanks for having me and uh on a friday evening where you're drinking tea and i'm having wine see the difference um (laughs) because I know better. Uh, we always start the show with an icebreaker question because I think it's a great way to kind of just get you into the groove. What was your first job? What was my first job? It so, can be in high school or college or like, you know, underage. Doesn't matter. So I had a long thought about this question uh, when you had originally presented it to me. And I think my favorite one that I wanted to answer with because I call it a job, even though it really wasn't being paid, was when I was working as a Cub Scout for the spaghetti dinner. Um, so I was working as a waiter, serving probably a good 200 different families, just spaghetti meatballs, some delicious juices and waters and things. And look, it doesn't sound that all exciting and everything, but what was really interesting was about that gig was while it sounds so simple, it was definitely one of the most complicated first jobs or jobs of my uh, of my career ever because of the fact that you have to work with alongside people the same age as you who had all different kinds of mentalities and how they wanted to get the spaghetti, get the meatballs, everything, and specific choices to people handling multiple like a, a million different orders at the same time. Can you make the perfect spaghetti and meatball? I can definitely make the perfect meatball and I can definitely make the perfect spaghetti and meatballs. Okay, so what's the perfect meatball? What's my favorite meatball? Yeah. The one that I recently played around with is when you stuff it with a little bit of cheese. So you stuff a little bit of blue <sighs> cheese inside of it. Yeah. So it just cooks just the right amount and it just kind of melts inside. It's just, it's kind of like when you think about a place like, um, oh God, what's what, the it meatball called? shop? 
Uh, well, there's the meat. Yes, yeah, the meatball shop, but actually into something different. If you think about Whitman's, the uh, the burger place over in the East Village, where they actually do a cheese stuffed burger, take that same concept and do it into a meatball. Wait, cheese stuffed burger? Yeah, they cook I think pimento cheese into the burger. What? Yeah, it's a wonderful thing. Where is thing. this? Uh, Whitman's is like Sixth Street, maybe somewhere around there. I hope there's going to be like a works cited page on this podcast where just like great things, recipe for meatballs and Whitman's. In so, because had you listened to the podcast, um, Simi, you would know that I have this thing called the show notes, and so every guest who comes in the show, whatever fun and interesting we we mentioned during the show, is on the website, and so then you can go and go click on those links for those things. So I read that as show nuts, which is uh, <laughs> beer and nuts, which is now making me hungry. So thanks. Sorry, I know um, we just don't, the worst. We don't serve food here. We serve alcohol. That's about it. Hmm. Wine is food. Yeah. Wine is life. It's grapes. Yeah. So there's that. So, sir, um, now that we've figured out that you know how to make the perfect meatball and that you were a good child laborer and when you were a Cub Scout, <laughs> what is it you do and tell people? All right. Um, wow, that's, uh, that's, that's a big question. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> it totally so, is. So my day job is I'm a venture capitalist. Uh, my colleague Andrew Mitchell and I run Brand Foundry Ventures, which is an early stage, as in seed stage focused venture capital firm focusing on low tech to high tech consumer products and devices. So low tech is defined as apparel and accessories, food and beverage, CPG, health and beauty. High-tech meaning uh, wearable technology, the Internet of Things, connected home, and business-to-consumer B2C hardware. So we have uh, 19 companies now in the portfolio. We have 18 out of our first fund, which we were doing 100 to 200K checks, again, across that same sector. We have just launched, and is and which is now live, a second fund, which we're doing up to a million dollars in seed checks to lead on those rounds. We have committed to one company um, as of late last year and looking at a second company right now. Awesome. And didn't you recently become Grand Puba? Uh, so Grand Puba is a great way to put it. Um, so I was recently promoted to principal uh, over at Brand Foundry. I've been a senior associate since the inception of the fund, which was in the beginning of 2014. So we're about to hit our three-year birthday, which is pretty exciting. Uh, we're going to have a great birthday party with little cakes and candles. Uh, no clowns, because especially after that clown epidemic and craze from last year. <laughs> no clowns. Uh, no, no clowns whatsoever. But so why didn't you call me to puppies. do the event for you guys, FYI? I'm sorry, what was that? You didn't call me to do the event for you guys? I'm just the worst. You know this. Yeah, um, yeah I know, especially because we had puppies. Though my cat, James, would actually would have not been too happy about that. Yeah, that's shameful. It's rough. Okay. So, literally rough, R-U-F-F. Oh, you were such a cornball. <laughs> you know that the dad jokes were coming. You know yes, that, right? Yes, I know. Okay. Okay. Thanks, So, McNaught. yeah. And you're hosing on my name, boy. <laughs> I'm not that far away from you to strangle you. I know. Uh, so, question <laughs> <laughs> Laura's not laughing. Um, So you're a VC. I know lots of VCs. You're one of my favorite because you actually talk legitimately about what you do. So for the people out there who are listening, how would you say that the land of uh, venture capital in 2017 kind of needs to be reset? So it's definitely hitting a major reset button. And I think part of that reset button was also happening during 2016. So... In 2015, you had a lot of money chasing so many different kinds of deals. You had, I would like to call, wannabe startups and wannabe investors. What I mean by that is that <clears throat> capital was really flowing around the, the startup world where there were startups that definitely did not deserve to be funded that were getting funding. That just And what I mean, what I mean by that is more 
that there were just these startups that were doing ideas, concepts, things that really should not have really gotten out to the market, whether they weren't thinking about a target customer or in terms of how big this company can actually go. And look, if they were to truly succeed, they really should only just be taking some angel investors and in other words, just individual people versus some venture capital firms or institutional investors. Again, people who are just playing with other people's money in a way, if you want to put it that succinctly. Um, and then the, on the other side, you had a lot of different investors who were giving capital to these to these startups. And it's just a lot of things that were not just so much half-baked, but ideas and concepts that just really should not have existed in the first place. So fluffy bullshit. Yes, fluffy bullshit is a great way to put it. And 2016, you started to see people that become a lot more conservative. You had a lot of those wannabe investors start pulling back, pulling away, recognizing the fact that, hey, maybe this wasn't a great idea. Maybe this wasn't a great concept to it. And you see a lot of these wannabe startups that are starting to, that were just falling apart. You had companies that were sold for next to nothing that after raising a couple million dollars in capital, uh, you had layoffs going through, you had a lot of just uneasiness coming through during 2016. And so you had that massive reset button basically happen at the very end of the year where all of a sudden you had a lot of venture capital firms closing funds and starting to put money into the end of that year where 2017 was basically who was emerging, the investors who truly knew what they were doing, the investors uh, who really understood the state of their markets, the specialists, I would say, versus the generalists. So what I mean by that, that are very sector-specific investors. And you're starting to see startups that were being very careful, that were working on, working on building businesses and not just ideas. So the bigger thing is that I think 2017 is going to be very exciting where we're going to see really the best of the rest truly shine with this reset happening in terms of a new, a, almost a brave new world. And do you think style. that's economic factors that are also playing into that, like the election, you know, the market correction, worldwide issues? Is that all playing into this new reset? I definitely think it is. Um, the brave new world, again, is a lot due to the election, especially for, you know, one of the largest upsets that, uh, that was pulled in U.S. history, I would argue, but the bigger thing is that while a lot of people were approaching it with trepidation, um, it definitely seems to be, especially over the past couple of weeks, that it is still pretty unpredictable, but it's actually we can be a lot more optimistic than before. I mean, there's a lot of personal opinions and personal viewpoints that are being shared across the incoming administration that we definitely have, in general, something that we should be definitely aware and alert about. But I think that in terms of a business opportunity, there are a lot more opportunities for the startup world and ecosystem to succeed. I think that there are, and this is also what I've realized during my time at Capitol Hill during last year, actually, was that Congress is looking to spend more time in entrepreneurship city by city and state by state, um, especially for the fact that there are these various bills for the Internet of Things, for cybersecurity, for different ecosystems that are being celebrated by both Democrats and Republicans. So the really exciting thing on that level is, yes, on the front space, people are very nervous, again, about this brand new world or about this brave new world, sorry. But internally, especially because Congress and politics was all about compromises, you're seeing a lot of good internal work being done behind the scenes. And you're seeing good architects on both the Democratic and Republican sides that 
quite frankly, care about the evolution of entrepreneurship and startups and venture investors that are coming through because they recognize that this is where innovation is going to come from for the United States itself. And if they don't embrace it, they're going to be scared. Well, exactly. I mean, you either you basically die. And, you know, if there if there is a maybe one bright side of a few, I would definitely argue about the incoming administration, is that there's going to be a lot more of a light shine about U.S. manufacturing. What can we do to make things better? And, you know, we focus a lot in terms of investing in consumer products. And if there's a way that we can build a solution to updating and upgrading the U.S. manufacturing sector and maybe having some of the best startups that are product-heavy find ways to collaborate with with politicians and with with the administration on building things. I mean, it's definitely, it's def. I would call that a success, even if it might be with uh, administration that we definitely not everyone is 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 a fan of. Uh, the bigger thing is you have to think about that in that tactical perspective to it, and you, it's hard sometimes to swallow your pride and put aside the uh, the personal views across people, but. That's the biggest thing for me that I'm hopeful and optimistic for. Yeah, it's interesting. I, w- I was reading an article in Bloomberg yesterday about um, the stock market and how, like, it's already corrected. And so, like, anyone who was, like, freaked that it was going to, you know, get blown left or right or up and down because somebody tweets, it's actually like, well, no, we've already sort of, like, put that correction in there. So, like, it's not going to make a difference. So... It's, I think, those sorts of things. I think when people start seeing stuff like that, mm-hmm. where it's like, no, you're not going to blow a hole through my 401k, um, that you can call it optimism or you can call it, like, it's going to be okay Yeah. Um, versus that. I guess, interestingly, I mean, you have a very unique perspective because of the fact that you're a VC and working with startups. I mean, I, you know, you know, DF is, um, we're Switzerland. Mm-hmm. So because of that, we get to talk to you guys, we talk to startups, we talk to brands, we talk to publishers, we talk to everybody. And so we get to see stuff in wide, unique um, varies of growth and change. For you, what would you say, you know, what's been... Like, what, what got you to start working in VC, and what's kept you working in VCs? So I got into the VC world by accident. Most, As most are. Yep. Most junior VCs basically get in when they least expect it. They're just very talented men and women who come from various spaces, the product world, the startup world, banking world, finance world, just even just coming in as a great thought leader. And I had known Andrew since 2011. So I graduated from Columbia as a biomedical engineer focusing in biomechanics back in 2008, and I worked at a private equity consulting firm for five years. Did project work for the first two, uh, working at a lot of consumer companies, uh, like from cosmetics to the largest manufacturer of junk, I would call it, to juice co-packing, to uh, nutraceuticals, on and on and on. Um, Did that for the first two years, then ran the business development arm of that company for the last three. During that transition, learning more about the follow the money uh, analysis of the private equity industry and doing it through a pseudo-anonymous Twitter account called PE Feeds. The, <laughs> yep, it's literally where it all came from. Uh, a really? lot of people ask, like, why PE Feeds? So that's where it's coming through. Uh, I couldn't get P- it's PE underscore feeds. Um, It'll be in the show notes. Nope, nope, duly, duly noted. Uh, <laughs> but the reason why there was an underscore was the original one was focusing on physical education. So ah. it was, um, you know, unfortunate that I couldn't get it, but then all of a sudden it opened up and I'm like, yeah, this is, this is, this is fine. Uh, I can brand it in the sub brands. Um, but 
the bigger thing was that uh, as I was transitioning and doing a lot of this analysis of the fall of the money opportunities of the good, the bad, and the ugly of the private equity industry, it was very interesting because the shadow industry across some of the most well-known companies that people know from the Whole Foods to the Dave & Busters, from the J. Crews to the J. Mandels, from the Vince's and, uh, and Jimmy Jane's uh, to the um, – to the sports authorities of the world. So it's, and, and the Stella de Oros and Hostesses. So it's a lot of great companies that people know uh, that went through just all different kinds of good, bad, and ugly situations that are courtesy of private equity. Anyway, that uh, caught the attention of a colleague of mine who was working on this agency model with a little bit of fundraising on the side that was investing in the companies uh, called, called Consigliere Brand Capital. So Mike Duda had brought me in to talk with him and said, introducing to his CIO, Andrew, who was investing through his angel shop called Zig Capital. Um, and Andrew and I just hit it off in 2011. So we stayed in touch. Uh, fast forward to the middle of 2013. When I moved over to the startup world, I joined a few colleagues of mine uh, who were running a development studio called Just Digital, which they needed help with someone on BizDev. Agreed to do it. Uh, first couple of months, kept meeting, meeting all these wonderful startups. But they all needed help with capital, and the only person I knew I hadn't talked to in two years. So reconnected with Andrew at the end of 2013, sat down with him in the beginning of the next year uh, saying, hey, I'm happy to send startups your way if uh, that could be helpful out of, just out of goodwill. Uh, because again, if I can help these startups with just even the littlest amount of capital, it's great. Um, 30 days later, he poached me, and <laughs> he's like, you're doing great work. How would you like to do this full-time? Of course, when you literally get a one-way ticket into the venture capital industry, it's you very yes. hard to say no. Exactly. It's You basically say yes. Uh, I thought I was going to work for his angel shop, and then a week or two later, after a meeting with one of the other startups, he's like, well, there's actually one more thing. And he was about to launch Brand Foundry, wanted me to come on as a senior associate. Of course, I agreed, and we, we opened for business on March 1st of 2014. Wow. So that's my life. And now you wear a shoot every day, except for today where you're in Air Force Ones and yeah. sneakers. Yeah, it's crazy. Sneakers, jeans, uh, and a sweater, and, and uh, a little uh, hat from uh, the great Drake, uh, October's very own. <laughs> I got to say, his, his store, that's another, that's another case study in terms of a brand um, to see how that's grown. But, uh, you know, it's another story for another time in terms of when you're taking a look at the rise of different brands. And it's something that I actually love about my job. So in response to your second question about why I stay here, I mean, I fucking love what I do. I get the opportunity to work and help as many startups and founders as I can. Now, I will openly admit that there are a lot of VCs that pick and choose who they want to help. Yeah. And to me, it's fucking ridiculous to watch that happen and to watch it even from the sidelines sometimes to see that happen. And even people that'll just be like, well, if you read my book in chapter three, you will know that the answer is right here. Uh, I will not mention which VC that is uh, because I am not the biggest fan of him, but... Uh, the fact that when you literally answer that in terms of your promoting your book, I'm sorry, man, just answer the fucking question. Yeah, I mean, what I find interesting is that, and why I have always adored you is that you are absolutely open with this stuff, and you keep you keep it real. I mean, I think what happens a lot of times with startups and VCs is that they suddenly start speaking another language, as if mm -hmm. like that is the way this is supposed to be. And well, it's like no. I have a business, you have money, let's figure out a way to work together. But more importantly, this is a relationships-based business. Absolutely. And if you build relationships early on, 
it's kind of like I was talking to someone the other day about like when you want to ask for connections and if people know what you're up to all the time, like, you know, we have our quarterly check-in, um, then it's always going to be like, oh, dude, well, I, you're kind of top of mind because like I know where you're at as opposed to like I'm drowning and I need $250,000 right now. Um, I think that's, you know, that's that, that weird dichotomy that happens where like it's very hard to find VCs who, who, who obviously are very busy, who are inundated with a lot of inbounds, make the time for these startups, make the time to be at the events. And what have you found as sort of like the right way to balance all of that? When I first started in VC, I definitely ran around like a headless chicken. I mean, I went to as many events as I could. I tried to be as helpful and as approachable as I could to, to, to startups, founders, to and work my way into other intermediaries like accelerators, incubators, uh, other programs like talent accelerators, like uh, Startup Institute, um, and just really be on the front lines. So I would also add that that relationship is definitely so important, but it also the correlation between that and reputation. Yes. And I mean, I, I was talking about this actually with a colleague of mine yesterday. It's kind of like, in a way, um, working your way up the mafia, where you start as a package boy or an errands kid, and you want to build your reputation about how you can be helpful, what you can do that people recognize about you. Like, you could be a package boy your entire time, uh, uh, a la, a la David Della Rocco and the and the Boondock Saints, but it's up to you to determine if you really want to take that next level. And you can show to your ecosystem or the family, I guess, in this case, how valuable of an asset you can truly be. And the bigger thing is you have to be specific about it, right? When you recognize what your strengths are and what you can do to help, it's you don't have to be a VC to do that. I mean, there's there's a great article by Matt Turk of First Mark Capital called The Fake VC, where I like to call it the hidden fourth way to get into venture capital, but it's how do you find a way to become helpful within your space, knowing that you can actually hope to open doors. You don't have to force doors open and make connections happen. It's all about opening those doors that you can test and see who are the right kinds of relationships and things to make happen. And that way of making that help and making uh, those connections happen over time is what's going to build your reputation and build your relationships in correlation to it. Because it's it's something that people, I think, are always so hesitant about doing because they get worried about if their reputation is going to get damaged. And I remember Adam Grant uh, with his original book, Give and Take, that focused so much about it that you should think about not really so much expecting things in return, but more so just being there and doing what you can to be approachable and helping a lot of these great men and women get to that next level. Because let's face it, we know the data point that 90% of startups die or fail within the first five years, and there are a lot of great ideas out there. But you also have to make the assumption, the correct assumption, admittedly, that most of these great founders lack the resources and networks that they need to succeed, whether or not it's in terms of bandwidth, in terms of how much time they have and schedule. And it's just, it's not so much about always physically being there to balance your time with with founders and things, but it's also just mentally and electronically being there, where you look through what they need, you look through how you can be helpful, and you you balance it in as efficient way as possible to understand how can I help? How can I stay on top of mind of the person? Or can you stay on top of my mind? So then over time, when you need something real time, I can actually know what makes sense. Because 
And the something is also as a message to all founders who are listening, don't be afraid to ask for help because yes. it's so, so important even just to be asked, to ask for it. Now, there, that said, there is a way to ask, not just in terms of demanding for an insurer or, or saying like, hey, can, I, can you introduce me to this person? Justify, qualify why that makes sense. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's, I always, I'll quit it to the pick my brain thing that everyone mm -hmm. talks about. And there have been lots of articles bandied about about whether or not people should charge for that. And I'm all, always of the mind that I can always give a half an hour of my time. Mm -hmm. um, I, what I usually tend to do is set, up, set my Fridays up. And like if it's someone who's junior, senior, or what, or, you know, equal level colleague, hey, let's sit down and have a coffee for half an hour. And let I me mean, hear what you're up to. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's very much like kind of like the mafia, whereby like I, I think that you know we sort of sit like we're kind of like the good little mafia people over in DF, whereby like because we know everybody, but like and, and and if I don't know them, I know a guy. Um, but it's also because you've built we've built the reputation that like also we do know everybody, mm -hmm. but we'll we'll also take your email. Like won't ignore your email. Like yeah. it takes a lot for me to ignore someone's email. You have to really really upset me for me to ignore your email. Yeah. Um, but it's the same. It's I think it's the same thing. It's like because money is time. Mm -hmm. But I, I'm a firm believer that if you do the right thing with people. Mm -hmm that like it's not about the dollars like lots of startups will say like are you going to take like 2% of the deal if you introduce me to this VC I'm like no <laughs> yeah it's like where did you even read from that like where did you even get that from it's and like, it's, I know someone, it's very scary yeah I mean and, and it oftentimes because like I think what happens is that like a lot of startup founders especially read way too much mm. and don't and aren't out there enough and yeah. aren't actually meeting people. So they hear that like yeah. this VC is a hard ass or this VC doesn't take meetings or this VC only takes things via docs end. Mm -hmm. And so therefore they get all freaked. And then when you say, oh, what's your startup? Well, you have to sign an NDA. I'm like, dude, get out of my face. Yeah, an NDA is an immediate red flag on that level. But the other bigger thing about that actually on that level is you got to remember that a lot of the things and a lot of the material that's out there for people to read and for founders to read, not all of it is objective. A good, no. a good amount of it is subjective and well, is coming from that person's opinion or angle. And so you have to take everything with a little bit of a grain of salt for that perspective. And I would even argue like the media themselves, like it's not always objective, unfortunately. And it's nothing against the, the tech media. It's just the fact that you also have to recognize that. Because whether it's in terms of your audience that you're coming to, in terms of what other kinds of situations that when you're presenting articles or things, if there's an agenda or a thing that needs to come through uh, on that level. But going to the events is the only way that you truly will get the best response. And I also recommend just looking up meetup.com, searching for, by keyword terms in terms of meetups and spaces that you are just interested in, whether it's fashion tech, whether it's fintech, whether it's health IT, and just just clicking on uh, meetups to sign up for, and you'll get a calendar and schedule of events, and you can sign up for them, and you're not penalized if you miss. Just the idea is that if you can start filling your calendar and finding opportunities, and sometimes you'll find meetups that you may have not actually thought about that just make the most sense about it. So... It, and going back to that original point that you're saying that you look at all your emails and respond to it, I know so many great venture capitalists that will read every single email. Like Mark Schuster reads every single one of his emails. Joanne Wilson reads every single one of her emails that are out on outreach. And I mean, I talk to Joanne pretty often the same way, like quarterly check-ins. And, and she's just like, it's amazing because you can't not just turn people down on that level. And it's just, it's, 
it's hard because you also have to make sure you balance enough of your personal life that on personal sanity just to make sure you're not uh, affected by a deluge of emails. But at the same time, you also have to find the way of balancing of the efficiency. And for me, it's like, I will go through the email, look for any key pieces of the points to it. But also more importantly, if I have any other deeper questions, I'll ask directly. It's like, hey, I have just a couple quick questions here. Can you help? Like, can you explain this more to me? And if and if not, like, we'll set up like a 20, 30 minute coffee uh, or a quick call just to understand it. Like, I truly believe that most things I can do, I can get done within 20 to 30 minutes. Yeah, I, I, I would totally agree. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I think one of the big issues right now in land of startups is that there's this youth culture obsession mm -hmm. and whereby like you can have worked at a company for 30 years and now you want to start a business and you can't get funded but you're some kid who gets out of college you worked a year at warby parker like and then you start another business and then you get funded right away and i think that you know the universe we live in right now, not so much Silicon Valley because like that's a whole other scary side of the universe, but I'm even talking about, about New York and seeing what I see in New York. Um, there's just still this obsession of youth culture. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of folks are like, well, what happened to like building my resume and actually having a career and then doing this as opposed to just sort of jumping in whereby I don't know jack shit about business, but now, yeah, give me five million bucks. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a serious problem. It's definitely a serious problem with the fact that older founders are not are getting a bit of the short end of the stick. And I agree, it's a bit ironic. Um, now, the thing is that while we do back a significant number of younger founders, it's also for the fact that the founders that we've backed are coming from a specific experience and they have a bit of an X factor and knowledge base and understanding where they need to go. Um, and it's a system that definitely is getting better in New York, I will say, that they're, the older founders and people are definitely getting more involved and getting more heavily looked at in the space. Um, I think the only way that we can truly combat this issue is to make sure that these same older founders are almost showing that youthful expertise onto it. And I'm not just trying to say in terms of the fact that they need to act like a younger founder, but it's also just being able to showcase the fact that in general, the most fundable founder is someone who is confident in what he or she is building, has taken the time to understand the pros and cons, but also limitations to what they're coming through. And admittedly, the older that you are, the more stubborn you're going to become. You're set in your ways. Yeah. And you're set in your ways. You come from that experience, but it's also that, that parabola where you're thinking about, we've hit that threshold age in a way where you've definitely gotten that space where you're open to interpretation, you're open to direction, you're open to advice and guidance, and there's going to be a point where it's going to go back down. And regardless of that, as a founder, regardless of your age, you got to showcase the fact that how confident and how much you truly believe in what you're building, but are always open to that extra direction, these extra advice and pieces. Because let's be, let's also be frank, 90% of that advice and things that you're going to get from others are going to be shit, but you got to look for that 10% of gems where it's going to be leads, it's going to be contacts, it's going to be other investors, it's going to be other people that you need to maybe get involved or just other bit pieces of information that you should be thinking about for your business. But also, again, it comes back to the other level of qualifying every single piece of it. So, yes, there is a very obsessive startup culture out there or startup founder culture in terms of the funding side of things. But what's also really important, I will say, is that the most successful younger founders 
also are coming from backgrounds where they people will look at that as like okay I, that makes sense I understand why person ABC is starting this startup and the the hunger and the passion definitely need to be there uh, from that level and again I'm not saying that that older founders are coming from there it's just also making sure that make that the experience that you bring to the table as an older founder isn't also going to be a hindrance for you yeah I think it's I think you have to have that balance you've I mean the thing that I see with lots of founders where I'm all when they kind of come to us is that do you have the fire for this? And I think that's the thing that's the most important because you are going to get the hell kicked out of you. So if you're okay with that, if you're and if sometimes if you're older, you are you have more responsibilities. You've got kids, you've got kids who are in high school, you've got kids who are going to college, and so therefore you have to be more risk averse. If you're young, if you're a young twenty two year old guy and you literally are sleeping on your friend's couch, risk is very low for you. If you're a forty year old mom with two kids, whole other side of the universe. So, are you going to make that leap? Will you be? How and also, how long can you withstand being in something along those lines? And you know, it's interesting. Like the universe of startups and who they are, and the makeup is also, you know, wrapped around this kind of bow of diversity. And mm-hmm. whereby, like, you know, women minority founders are still at the bottom of the pile. And I know that you guys have been really on the forefront as a, as a fund to find people. Oh, you know, women and minorities to be founders. Can you talk a little bit about why you guys, like, why that's part of, like, not so much the mission, but, like, it's something mm-hmm. that you guys have been able to be stellar at. I mean, it's something that I will openly admit uh, in the beginning, it wasn't on purpose to invest in so many women founders and have a great diverse level of it. So out of the 19 companies, basically over 11 of them are, are female founder-led. And, you know, we believe a lot in the female founders we've backed um, in our time over at Brand Foundry, it's more so of a fact of you have to look at it in the shades of black and white of the founders themselves who are just successful and understand what they're doing. And I'll be, I'll be honest, especially in the past year to year and a half, I've been just seeing so many more female founders that understand their product, that understand their business model, they understand their market strategies better than their counterparts. And that's not as a result that we're going to invest more in female founders. It's just definitely a point and a and a characteristic that we've been noticing a lot and we've been happy to see on that perspective. It's something that we are so proud to know that we are at the forefront of it, but it's just making us actually want to work harder. So when you look on that mentality of just looking for great founders that are just building the right companies, the right products, that's what's driving us as investors to be the most helpful. There are so many other pockets of people too that are definitely just underlooked. Like female founders, people of color, minorities, that's only just that's only the tip of the iceberg in terms of that group of a fantastic group of founders that aren't being t- just aren't being looked at in terms of getting that extra assistance to it. And it's something that also still boggles my mind that investors are not thinking about and This ecosystem, this whole startup ecosystem will only truly succeed on a colorless perspective if everyone chips in that 30 minutes of their time to be helpful, to understand how can they be helpful. So we love to be on the forefront, but it's more about being on the forefront of being beyond investors, personally investing. Yeah, I know it's interesting because I, you know, it's bizarro world to me when I see some of this stuff and I'm like, 
Do, and then they're like, oh, we don't know any of the founders or we don't know any people of color. Like, have you ever gone to a meetup that was run by blacks in tech? Have you ever gone to an LBGTQ meetup? Like, you don't know where these people are? Go where they are. Yeah. Like, you, enc- we, we encourage folks of color, we encourage women to go to events that are, they're not, where they're, they're going to be the only one there. Mm-hmm. But like, there isn't the give back where it's like, well, you guys don't come to our stuff. Like, you guys won't leave like Union Square. Mm-hmm. You guys won't go to Brooklyn. You guys won't go to Harlem. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the big issue. It's like you've got to get off your high horse too. Mm-hmm. And you know, as I said, like you know, one of the things we've always respected about you is that like we see you everywhere. Yeah, you'll still be in a suit um, <laughs> because that's just your style. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, but it, it's. It, I think there need to be more of you who do that. And mm-hmm. I think the one of the problems I've seen, and you can disagree with me if you want, if you dare, um, is that. I've seen a lot of bullshit from your counterparts whereby like they claim that they are out to help women and minorities, but it's all kind of fluff. I mean, I did an event for a client and some very well, well-known VCs who you've mentioned um, were there. And I was floored at the level of BS that I saw. And I was like, wow, because like, I had been like touting that these people were going to be at this thing. And I I was almost like embarrassed because I was like, oh, OK, so they're like all for show, like their whole, oh, we love female founders. We love helping women. You know, we love helping women. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Like that is that's shit you tweet. That's not shit you do. Mm-hmm. And I think that unfortunately, is something that I've seen a lot more prevalent. I think as everyone's sort of like commenting about the fact that there's not enough, Mm. people are jumping in and saying, well, yes, yes, I am. But then they're really not backing it up. And then you turn around and look like, well, where are their investments? They're still not investing in those things. They're quote unquote showing up, but they're speaking on the panel and bouncing. Mm. Or they're in the back after the sh- after the conference, and they're not taking any meetings of anybody else. They're just on their phone, and then as soon as they're like, oh, they're done. The- well, as soon as their Uber's here, they're out the door. Yeah. Um, and I think that's you know, I think that's also a, a bit of a problem. I mean, again, we can't do nothing about Silicon Valley because that's scary as hell. But I think here in New York, um, there's there's got to be a better way as well. I definitely agree with you. And the bigger thing, though, I will say is that uh, there are this great bottom part of the pyramid of junior and mid-level VCs who are doing great work to get out there. And what's been really exciting to watch that happen is you're also seeing some great captains of industry, I almost would call them, um, who are either getting into the venture capital community or work very deeply within that space. And it's a really exciting opportunity and mentality to it when you think about the Tristan Walkers and the Geisha Haases of the world, uh, where Geisha and the Lisa Wangs and Yin Lins of the world. So when you think things like things like uh, she works and dreamers and doers, especially for female founders uh, on that level, and then Tristan, who's working a lot in helping the minority communities and, and the African American community and, the, and founders uh, that are coming through there, and then you have things like Girl Develop it and Girls Who Code, where Reshma Sojani and the Sarah Chips of the world are trying to get more of those opportunities out there, and then you have uh, the Start Out community for LGBT world that's coming through up and then you have things coming up in Harlem that are coming through of pieces. And the great thing is that deeper relationships are happening between those captains of industry and onto the venture community. And especially within the younger communities that are out there. And I can think about 
I can definitely name probably a good 10 to 12 young VCs who I absolutely admire. Uh, and I, when I say by young, I was like, not even just for the fact that they're associates or senior associates or analysts or whatever, but they're also like principals and partners um, that are doing just fantastic, great work that are trying to be out there, like the Peter Boyces of the world, the Jason Schumans of the world, the Caitlin Strandbergs of the world, you know, the Adi uh, Levinans of the world, Alison Kern, on and on and on, um, that are taking the time. Jason Black, um, uh, what's his name? Julian Moncada. I, I, I just keep going on. But what I'm not trying to even do this in terms of a name drop. It's just, it's something that I also can sit back and know this is happening. Right. So the other big thing, though, about this is that I can keep listing all of these names and it'll be wonderful to have them continue to grow onto the stratosphere. Another people like Jesse Middleton, Tim Devane, the principal over at Next View Ventures, which is a pre-seed focused venture capital firm. And he put together the ultimate guide or the ultimate list of people you need to know in the New York City startup ecosystem on all these different levels. It's not perfect. There's no question. And he'll openly admit it's not perfect. And it's consistently getting built out. You have resources like that that are getting built. You have what's called the VC Finder, which is being built by Morgan Politan over at Bloomberg Beta. Um, that honestly is something that should happen in basically opening up the firms, the focuses, and some contacts for venture capital, like main contact people from there. Um, people like John Gannon is also putting together a public email list for people out there. And uh, people like Shai Goldman is also listing things of, of Silicon Valley Bank. So I'm listing all these different things. I know it's kind of a, a bit of a murky mess in terms of answers here, but I'm listing all of these to go into the notes afterwards for the sole purpose that the information's out there. Yeah, you the information's it. out there. The people, the people are find out it. there. They're going to find these things. But most importantly, the issue really between that gap is that not enough is being done to make sure it's getting out to the mainstream. Right. And as a result, you end up with the negative effects of it. So, so yeah, yeah. It's I, I think knowledge and information is power. Yeah, the faster, the more efficiently you can get the information that's actually useful. The way you'll be far more successful. So I think this kind of plays into your new initiative, which is where you're going around and you're going face to face to meet some new people. So when I read your Facebook post, I was like, "This is freaking brilliant!" And I want to talk about this with you. So, um, can you give our listeners a little spiel about what? made you decide to create this experience of checking out diners across the country? Yes, yes. So I am pulling up the actual note behind the first, first quote-unquote episode, actually, of this uh, known as Diner Tour. Pull it up here. So I actually have to write it down, but I still have it from my time when it was up in Hunter, New York, or actually technically Tannersville, New York, uh, with a colleague named Robbie uh, at this barbecue joint up there. We're looking at the election, right? We realize how deeply divided this country has become. You had people who just weren't willing to not just reach across the aisle and learn about the other side, not for a sense of empathy, but to swallow your pride to be more humble. You know, this whole idea that people are saying is that we should be more present. Like, yes, but we also need to be more humble as human beings to not think about everything that we believe in is right, but learn about the other side and have an objective response to it. So when I was thinking about it, what I was going to personally do about learning and being more educated and being more objectively curious and really emphasis on the word curious 
I was thinking about the system of Americana, and I'm a Jersey-born, born and raised kid. And so the two big things that were always huge for us were bowling alleys and diners. And I realized the diner is the true system of Americana, where you find people of all walks of life that are coming from there. And so my goal was to build something which I call Diner Tour, where across the country, over the course of 2017, I'll be spending time in various cities across, across it, learning and just learning about people and just writing down some just quick notes about it uh, in an objective form about what their lives are like, what they're dealing with with their lives, about maybe even the election, about how they feel about the state of the country. Um, but again, just learning from them and about them with the goal of having a, you know, a, a great structured and admittedly fun conversation. I was up in the Catskills uh, the beginning of January, and I met a guy named Robbie, who's a manager of a barbecue joint. You know, he's a gay Republican. He's a gay Republican. He's, Whoa, they still make those? Yeah, he's a gay Republican who voted for Trump. Wow. And what was really interesting about the conversation, this and is he a runs kid. a barbecue joint in the Catskills? What? Yeah. How did you find him? So it's crazy, because like for me, it's just always interesting, because it's it was like, you know, I was like, part one little piece of me was like, wow, this is going to be a great first quote-unquote episode about it. But, you know, this is a guy who, again, gay Republican. He voted for Trump. He's a Southern born and raised kid. He was raised admittedly into a wealthy background and grew up on a horse farm, raced horses early on until he was 15. And he had realized, though, how truly divided his friends and things were. Like, he posted a story on Facebook about Trump and Pence. And what was interesting is he has about, according to him, he has 5,000 friends and since that story was posted, he probably lost about 20% of them. He was down maybe about 3,200. He came out to his mom and dad pretty early on, and his mom was always supportive about it, but it took some time for his for his dad to be supportive until uh, until relatively recently, but who is super supportive now. And his reasoning before voting for Trump was that Pence has evolved from his past thoughts on the LGBT community. He's a lot more welcoming than before. Um, look, I... I, he was not able to back it up with any specific articles or evidence or anything, but again, that's something that this is his, that's his, his viewpoints for it. That's his thought, what he's learned. Um, and he also, he, he said, and it is admittedly partly right, that Trump has always been pretty socially liberal in terms of LGBT rights. Um, and then he's just, the other side of it, like he was just so bothered about where Hillary was taking money from overseas. Like, why haven't you take more money domestically? Why did you actually take that opportunity from it? And so there were a lot of ethical issues on that level that he was just personally not comfortable with. And what was it was a very interesting conversation over a great number of old fashions. And what was even funnier because for diner tour, the first one was at a barbecue joint, more of like the night version, so more of a bar tour at that level, uh, which I realize that's also going to be part of it with of this course. whole diner tour play. But more importantly, it just opened up a fur opened up your eyes about it, where you're in the middle of upstate New York, not too far away from from uh, from New York City. You're basically two and a half to three hour drive away, and this is the mentality that you're getting from mm-hmm. from this kid. Um, I say kid because he's in his mid twenties, but what was just so interesting to me about it was people will make that assumption. You even just kind of sh- showed your 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 shock about the fact that gay Republicans exist. Gay Republicans who vote for Trump, who voted for Trump and believe in that administration exist. And that's something of a great first opportunity for us to want to learn more, to dive even more 
in terms of that sense of curiosity. So over time, over this year, it's going to be, I know it's going to be a very interesting ride. What's been really exciting is that a lot of my friends have been giving me diner ideas in terms of their hometowns. And it's something I'm definitely going to start sourcing across friends uh, in terms of the ones that I should go to in terms of their local towns. But it's also speaks to a larger level where we as Americans, but we especially as human beings, need to be a lot more humble. We need to be a lot more curious. And we have to find that way of learning, learning again on an objective form. And I will always respect anyone's personal point of view, even if I may not agree with it. But that's something that what I'm doing with Diner Tour, and I hope people will work through, especially in this brave new world that we're entering. I know I've said that like four or five times now, but that's really <laughs> how I feel about it. It's like, it's a brave new world. And in this space, like, we need to learn about each other more. We yeah, need to no. respect each other more. And I'm excited to see where this Diner Tour is going to come through. Yeah. I, you know, I, as I said, when I saw your Facebook post, I'm like, I am beyond fascinated. I wasn't <laughs> shocked that there was a gay Republican. I was shocked there was a gay Republican running a barbecue joint in the Catskills. That, <laughs> okay, like, come on. Duly noted. Duly okay, noted. that is like the most, I mean, look, I grew up on Long Island. Yeah. So I know, I, I've met that dude before. I just never, I didn't think he'd have a barbecue joint mm-hmm. in the Catskills. I figured he'd be somewhere on Long Island. Um, you know, I have to say that you are, um, Extremely admirable. Aw, thanks. <laughs> um, because, yeah, I don't have the patience for that <laughs> at all. See but, see, but that's the thing, right? That's that's the issue, right? Yeah, I have always been the person to hear somebody else's side of the universe, but then I think it's interesting that, like, as a result of the thing that happened in November, it said to me that, like, okay, you can separate your brain in. 18 different ways to justify something. Okay, great. But then how are we going to be, how, how how can you justify that and then justify something else? Because it seems to me that like those things are so diametrically opposed. Like, you know, you're seeing a lot of people freaking out now about Obamacare because I don't know if you saw this meme la- this week where this guy was like, ha ha, a oh, yeah. is going down. And then he's like, and they're like, well, I need like, well, my affordable cat will be fine. And they're like, dude, Affordable Care Act is Obamacare. And like, he just like got like, you know, burned across the internet because of that. Um, so apparently in that same post, someone on Red- on that same Reddit post, someone actually had uh, um, I posted as like, who was a friend of his, had said like he had not logged in since. And he has not deleted it. I wish there were people who were on the other side of the universe who were doing the same thing that you're doing. I, I have a friend who's driving cross country, mm-hmm. and she's stopping in different places to meet different people. And you know, I would welcome seeing the other side do that because, like, the, like this, like, there was an article about like, well, liberals aren't elite. The folks who are in like working class middle America are actually elite because of you know they're the ones who are getting everything from the from the state from the government. Whereby like it's all their subsidies, all their programs are coming, and like, and they pay the lowest amount of taxes versus big cities who do, and they get you know, for every dollar New York City pays in taxes, they get back like seventy five cents. If you're in Kentucky, every dollar you pay in taxes, you get two dollars and ten cents back. The more important thing is to, like we have to listen, but then they have to listen too. I of think that's I, I think that's where I, I would hope that you find some folks who are the same mind, but just opposite spectrum. So if you are present, then you want to listen. So and being present in places that you wouldn't normally expect. So you're in a cat school's barbecue joint. So the same deal. It's like, you know, if you're folks from different places mm-hmm. 
come out to our side of the universe because like that's the I mean look you're not going to solve everyone's problem you're not always going to agree but I think if you give your chance give yourself an opportunity to at least listen mm-hmm. um you'll have you'll, you'll have a better chance of you know finding some common ground I absolutely agree with you on all of those points and I think it's when you look at the and this is something that I learned from a from a psycho a friend of mine who's a psychologist where you look at passive versus aggressive and you have to find that middle ground where passive is basically doing nothing and basically letting things roll over you versus aggressive where it's almost the system of bullying and being accusatory and that was a system where it was a very it was an aggressive strategy being done on one side and the other side gets uncomfortable and they become aggressive again and as a result when you see things from abortion to gay marriage or marriage equality to gun control and all these different things you had a lot of very aggressive styles that were coming from more of a left-leaning side. And as a result, people felt threatened. And when you feel threatened, you automatically get defensive. And when you get defensive, you try to come back with your own aggression. And as a result, it broke a lot of conversations across people. There was no desire uh, on both sides, in my in my opinion, that we're looking to find some sort of assertive solution where you understood that there was a serious issue and that we're all at fault for all of these problems but let's find a way to work together. I mean, there were times when the NRA was working with the government to find ways to fix the systems on gun control. And when you get to a position where people just feel threatened and they feel uncomfortable, you're going to lose the battle. Good points. I think the best analogy for what you're up to is, I don't know if you saw the SNL sketch before the election where it was Tom Hanks and he was playing Black Jeopardy. And basically, it was him and playing against two women. And basically, it was it was probably the best sketch I've ever seen them do on race because it was literally it was about like kind of like conspiracy theories that like you would think oh only black people hear about it. But like he's it's like a redneck make America great and hat wearing dude. And he's like yeah yeah of course I love that of course I love. And, and then and they're like wow no Jimmy's all right. And then the last one was all lives matter. And they're like oh wait. And they're like nice knowing you Jimmy. And that was. And like that was a thing that sort of like, well, we're not going to touch that one. And and that's kind of how the sketch ended. But it was about the fact that like we're more alike than we're we're dissimilar. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of where there's going to there's going to be hope. It's like what uh, President Obama was saying this week is Mm -hmm. like, yeah, it's like you've got to find the light in the darkness here. And it's a we, not an I. There is an opportunity here. And. I when I when I heard that speech when I heard that farewell address I was so happy because that also was fr- I was also frustrated because that speech should have been made right before the election because this is something that regardless of even as uh, how the election would have turned out it's something that everybody needed to hear there's this opportunity across you the young guns of the DNC and I, there's definitely a bunch of young guns and young good hearted people on the Republican side that are going to definitely be championing this. And there's a great opportunity to make this happen. Awesome. I think that's a great way to end the show. Thank you so much, Samit. This has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, You're one of my favorite people who I just know always has, like, the most level-headed ways of of thinking about the universe. And the 11 billion things that you mentioned... (laughs) I will try and put in all the show notes. Um, and um, show notes or show notes? Show notes. Yeah. Show notes for real. <laughs> um, but we will have them all in the show notes. Mm-hmm. I encourage you all to follow um, Simit on Twitter at PE underscore feeds. And what's the other one? What's your other handle? 
Um, no, that's the main one. That's I mean, well, one? Brand Foundry is uh, at Brand Foundry VC. Gotcha. Uh, I, we, I tweet a lot over at, at PE Feeds, and if you respond to me through Twitter, I... He will respond res- to you. Yeah, 9, 9.9 times out of 10, I will respond. Um, and most importantly, if anyone needs any extra advice or things, if you're a founder on the show and if you'd like to reach out to me, uh, Twitter is definitely great, but I'm also a Sumit, S-U-M-E-E-T, at brandfoundryvc.com. You can just let me know that you heard me from the episode. And I'd love to see how I can be helpful. See how lovely he is. See how lovely he is. Well, thanks so much. And uh, we're out. Thanks. Thanks. Later. The Reset Podcast is sponsored by Bose. With my new Bose QC35 headphones, nothing gets between me and my music. The noise canceling is world class. They're completely Bluetooth, so there's no wires. The sound is amazing. My producer and I love these so much that we use them to record every single show. For more information about Bose QC35 headphones and other Bose products, check out Bose.com. Audiation.